Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Isaiah. We're in chapter 30, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust, trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, and quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice, blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem, you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself any more. But your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you, saying, This is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. You may be seated. So if you're sitting there wondering, what was that? I have good news. Uh, we're going to spend the next, next nine weeks figuring it out. Um, a few weeks ago, we talked about how to read the Bible, um, how to hear God's voice in Scripture. Um, and one of the things we talked about was just the different complex genres and eras uh, in the Scriptures. Um, and what we just read in Isaiah chapter 30 is uh, in the genre of prophetic literature, okay? Which means, for one, it's got a lot of really interesting images in there, um, complex ideas that are kind of explained through pictures, word pictures. Um, and there's also a lot of historical, uh, cultural, contextual matters that are really important to get a hold of in order to understand the passage right. Um, because when you read it, you're kind of like, wait a minute, if I don't listen to God's word, he's going to smash me on the ground like a pot? I don't, what? What does that mean, Right? Well, we gotta, we got to pull ourselves back into a particular time and place and, and understanding in order to get a lot of what that talks about. Um, and so what we're going to do in these next nine weeks, the, the sermon series we're jumping into here is called A Far Off Country. Um, and that sermon title, sermon series title, kind of has a double meaning. It, it, it partly is going to refer to Babylon, um, as we look at Israel uh, previous to 
um, during and then after the exile to Babylon, which was this tremendously important event at the end of the Old Testament. So that's partly what we're referring to when we talk about a far-off country, is that Israel is exiled to Babylon. Babylon is the far-off country. But also, partly what the far-off country idea is going to refer to is this idea that even for us, as followers of Jesus, people who have new hearts that desire to follow after God's law, who really want to love others and serve God um, and, and repent from sin and turn from idols and, and, and faithfully live our lives out before the Lord, that even in this place for us in this time, there is a sense, there is a feeling that we're not really at home, that there's something still off, a far off country that is not our present experience, something that we long for, that we get the taste of occasionally, that once in a while we, we catch a vision of it, but it's still just like, it's just, it's out there, it's, it's, it's far off. Um, and in a couple of weeks, we'll get to a, a, a tremendous quote by C.S. Lewis, where the, this series title is actually stolen from, where he talks about this reality as followers of Jesus, that we have this far-off country uh, in our mind and in our hearts and in our hopes um, that isn't currently yet our experience, but is something that we long for, um, and it's something that God has promised to bring. And in Israel's experience of their exile to the far-off country, they start to become familiar with this idea that we have, that their home isn't their home, because they go to Babylon and it's not home, but that's where God puts them for a little while. Um, and then also what's interesting is they come back from exile. And when they come back from exile and they start to rebuild Jerusalem, they still have that experience and that feeling like, okay, we're back home now, but it doesn't feel like home. Something's, something's amiss. Something's awry. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to look at a couple of the prophets during this Old Testament period of, of exile. Um, interestingly enough, there's like, 20 books, 21 books um, in the Old Testament that talk about exile, um, that talk about it historically or talk about it prophetically or talk about it ex experientially. Um, that's a lot. That's a ton. If you've ever read through the Old Testament, you know once you get through like Kings and Chronicles, everything just goes like everywhere, right? Well, I hope that as we study exile, it'll help us kind of kind of pull some of that together. I think it'll be a lifetime for me and for you to, to really grasp a lot of what's going on. But I hope if we just look at exile for a little while, look at some of these prophets, start to understand some of the history of it, that a little bit of your reading of the Bible in the Old Testament, whenever you happen to do that, will be aided um, by, a, by a greater understanding of the exile period. Um, and again, this was uh, incredibly an important historical moment for Israel. Okay, um, you know who Israel is, right? They're the guy, they're the people that not the guys, the, the people that God rescues. Um, he he called Abraham out of his home. He says, "I'm going to make a people." He calls him to uh, to to leave the land of Ur and to go find a, a new home. And God starts to build Abraham's family. Eventually, some of Abraham's descendants end up in captivity in Egypt, 
and then God rescues them from Egypt, you know, through the Red Sea, the Exodus, all that stuff. They wander around in the desert for a while, and eventually they get into the promised land, and they make their, themselves at home, and they first have judges, and then eventually they're like, we want a king, and they get Saul, and he stinks, and then they get David, and he's better, and then David has a son named Solomon, and he's amazing, but then everything falls apart, and that nation, Israel, in that land, um, it gets divided into Judah and Israel, which is a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and they fall under the threat of invasion. We have this geopolitical turmoil that begins to happen around Israel. And in the middle of all this stuff happening, they're continuing to uh, rebel against God. They're not doing the things that God commands them to do. They start worshiping the idols of the land that they've inhabited. Instead of worshiping God, um, they put up shrines and Asherah poles, whatever the heck that is, and, and different temples and, and different uh, places for sacrifice. And they, they're, they're doing all these other worship activities to other gods. And God keeps on saying, listen, <laughs> I didn't give you a country so that you could just be like everyone else. I gave you a country so that you could shine the glory of myself and who I really am to the nations so that you would worship me and show, me, show the world what real life is like what true peace can be like, what, what great holiness uh, can exist if you follow the Lord your God, but you keep refusing to do it. And a prophet after prophet after prophet comes and brings them warning. Um, and finally, captivity happens. Finally, Assyria attacks, then also Babylon attacks, and the people are pulled away into exile. Um, God judges Israel's sin. But as he judges Israel's sin, he makes great promises for their time in exile and the time after exile. And he proclaims to them a deep hope that one day God's going to fix it all. That one day God's actually going to make a people who really want to follow him. That actually one day there's going to be a great nation. And that great nation is going to be from every tribe and every tongue and every language and every people group under the entire earth. The final fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. One day he's finally going to make himself king overall. And everyone will love and worship him. And he'll change people's hearts, right? And we see that great promise even in the middle of all this turmoil of exile. And so as we look at exile, we're going to find out more about kind of the heart of God. We're going to find out more about the character of God. Like our sermon's titled today that we, that we serve a God of justice, but we also serve a God of hope, um, that he will not let sin go unpunished. Um, that he will not let uh, rebellious people abide forever, that he, he will put an end to it. Um, and that, that great hope that is to come is that one day over all he will reign um, and his glorious throne will be established. And so it's, a, it's an interesting time period. We're going to dig through it um, today by looking at uh, a section of Isaiah. Um, next week we're going to jump into uh, the prophet Micah. And we're going to spend three weeks in Micah. Um, where we're going to see warnings about exile and some promises of hope. Um, and then we're going to look at the book of Lamentations, uh, which is a, a point where we're going to take a deep dive into the, the emotional turmoil of the people who went into Babylon. Um, if you're an emotional person, uh, bring tissues that day. That's going to be a heavy day. It's an interesting uh, look at just everything that goes on in the middle of this chaos uh, of exile. And then after that, we're going to look at how Israel comes home. 
Um, we're going to look at the book of Ezra, and we're going to see how God's people get set free from captivity in Babylon and, and begin to return home uh, to Israel and begin to rebuild Jerusalem. And then we're going to spend three weeks in the prophet Haggai, which everybody I know, you're just dying for Haggai, right? Three weeks in Haggai looking at what happens after the people come back because Haggai was a prophet to the people after they returned um, from Israel. And as we look at Haggai, then we're really going to begin to start uh, seeing more and more how Israel's exile is kind of a foretaste of our own. We're going to see a lot of that, like our experience running parallel to Israel's experience um, in, in the fact that they came back, but it just wasn't the same, right? Just, just, it just wasn't what they hoped for. And that's so often our experience, right? Like we come to Jesus, we're like, yay, I'm going to, oh, wait, oh, I'm still so silly sometimes, right? That's the very kind word. Like you just, ah, that, right? So that's going to be our journey. Sound fun? I hope so. Um, I've been enjoying the study of this for, for actually for quite a while. You might remember a year and a half ago or so, we, um, we looked at Daniel um, and talked about Babylon. Um, and ever since we were looking at Daniel and talking about Babylon, I've been, I've been kind of like obsessed with exile, just really enjoying a study of it. So hopefully it'll translate well <clears throat> to, uh, to these Sundays. Uh, a couple of things I want to point out um, before we jump back into this passage from Isaiah and try to, try to understand it at least a little bit. Um, I want to just look at what uh, some of the things that we're going to learn as we study exile. Um, one of the things that we're going to learn is that the Lord God is patient. There's this repeated refrain in the Old Testament. It's in Psalms a few times. It's, it's all over um, where uh, God is, is described as merciful and gracious, that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Um, so one of the things about uh, the kind of the history of exile is that the road to exile is really, really long and very, very slow. And that there are, there are moments where it seems like, oh, it's all about to fall apart. Everything's going to crash. And then all of a sudden, oh, okay, never mind. It's, everyone's okay. And oh, no, here it comes. It's, gonna, it's like, it's just really interesting, just the ebb and flow of the process and kind of the, the, uh, the, the, um, the steady march toward exile. Um, but God is really patient with Israel through that long, slow process. Um, and in the middle of that patience, we see God um, warns them and he waits for repentance. That God is constantly bringing warning and that he is waiting for Israel's repentance. We'll even see that in our passage today, that God is, is, is sending prophet after prophet to give these warnings. Um, he gives Israel an abundance of opportunity to turn around and to go the other direction, to go the right direction. Over and over and over again, he gives that opportunity. Uh, what we also see in this exile period of time is that God is sovereign, um, meaning that God is uh, in powerful control over the, the, the events of human history. Um, the exile process involves not just Israel, but all of the nations around Israel, and then even nations that Israel did not know. Like It involves most of the known world 
at that time. And what we see during the process of exile and, and, and all these different things happen, we see that God knows what's going on. He knows the kings that are in power in these different nations. He knows exactly what's going to unfold. Um, he actually reveals to Daniel in some dreams when Daniel's in captivity about exactly the succession of kings and empires and kingdoms that are to come. And you can trace Daniel's visions and look at history and go, yep, there's one, yep, there's two, yep, there's three, yep, there's four, yep, there's five. Just like God said. It's crazy. It's hundreds of years. It's complex kingdoms. It's, it's megalomaniac rulers. It's, and everything happens exactly how God foretells it. It's crazy. Right? So God is sovereign over all of this. It's tremendous as you begin to kind of sit back and watch. But even in this great sovereignty of God, we see that God is just. That God will not ever let evil go unchecked. That even these empires that God uses to bring judgment on Israel, God also brings judgment on them. Right? So God uses Babylon, but then God sets Babylon down. He conquers them. Because God will not abide with injustice forever. And so when there is evil and when there is injustice and when these things that are absolutely devastating and broken, when they happen, we see that God is over them as well and that he will not abide the evil forever. We read that some in our, in our call to worship this morning where we see that ultimately evil um, is dealt with by God. And that all points forward towards the cross of Jesus Christ, whereas we see the final dealing with uh, of, of justice uh, and how God brings that at the cross. We also see that God is faithful, that he is true to his promises, right? This process of exile, like your process of life, is twisting and turning. It's up and it's down. Sometimes it's dark and sometimes it's bright. Sometimes we can't see our foot in front of us. Other times we can see the road ahead. Right? This, the, the process of exile shows the faithfulness of God that even when things are confusing, we'll really see that in Lamentations. These guys are like tearing their clothes, pouring ashes on their heads, falling into the dust, saying, where are you, God? And all the while, God is being faithful even to his promises um, to Israel during that time. So we see that he's faithful. Um, we see that though Israel must be disciplined, he does not abandon them or let them come to, other, to utter ruin. Um, there are promises that God gave to Abraham and the covenant that he made um, at, at uh, Mount Sinai with Moses and another covenant he made with David, and he keeps every one of those promises. He's faithful to those promises, and we can trust that, um, that that is true. And then finally and ultimately, we'll see that Messiah will come. Okay, The exile is part of the greater process of God bringing about the right time, the right place, the right environment for Messiah to come, okay? So we know that God is preparing Israel, and not just Israel, but also the world for the coming of Messiah. We know, because we're past Messiah, right? We know, looking back on exile, everything that will come about, which gives us a tremendous advantage, which is why we've got the scriptures to, to show us, looking backwards on everything, oh, okay, God was faithful, God is sovereign, God is good, and Messiah did come. Right? We get the, the advantage of looking back uh, on history and understanding that all these things came about exactly as God planned them because the great and true fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, Moses, and David is the coming of Jesus. That that is the fulfillment of his promises and that through the coming of Jesus, God does ultimately make a people for himself again from every tribe and um, nation and tongue. So if, um, 
If you've ever begun a new book series, uh, you understand that it, it takes a little bit to kind of get into the story and the characters and, and kind of the plot and the, just the, the setting and all that kind of stuff. I've told some of you guys this in just regular conversations, but I, there was a kid that, he's not a kid anymore, but he was a kid when me and my wife first went to um, uh, Springfield, Illinois. He was a youth in the church that I, I got a job at. Um, his dad was one of the pastors at the church, and he was the, he was the oldest son of, of uh, my friend Tim. And um, so I, I got to know Christian was his name. I got to know Christian really well. Um, he might have been 12-ish when I met him. Um, well, I mean, he grew up just like me, and so now he's like out of college and married and has a career and everything. And his career is that he's a, he's a writer. He writes novels. Um, and so I've been just following his life like you get to on social media and stuff and suddenly began to realize he's writing books. I'm like, what the what? I, little Christian t- t- writing books? Um, and so I grabbed one of them, uh, I don't know, last summer maybe. I don't remember when I grabbed the first one. And uh, it's a story uh, about this, this, this boy who's kind of coming of age um, and, and he lives in a village that's been attacked by a dragon um, and they're kind of just basically like waiting for the dragon to come back and get him again. Um, and so they've, they've fortified all their dwellings and they kind of have this, this really interesting view on what's going to happen when the dragon returns. And there's all this stuff that's going on and it's been really fun to, to dive into that book. And I just found out, uh, I think this week or last, that, that book number two from that series is, is now on Amazon. So I can, I can grab that and, and run with it. Um, but it's just, it's, it's been a, a really neat thing to hear this young man that I knew once as a young boy um, just begin to describe a whole world that's just in his brain, right? He's just describing this whole world with all these characters and this history and this setting and, and this, this hope for a future, all this stuff that's in there. And as I've dug into these books, it's helped me just really respect the, uh, the wisdom and the creativity and the smarts of this this guy, Christian, that, that I knew when he was little. And so uh, similar to that, the experience of learning about exile in here shows us just so much about uh, just the complexity of, of what's going on in the Old Testament, um, the different stories and the, the narrative that, that weaves together some of the characters that are in there, um, and all the while just expands our understanding of how great God's power is, how amazing his plan is. Um, how insane his sovereignty really is that he sees over all of this stuff. Um, But it takes some time to kind of work into it and to discover it. And so today in Isaiah, we're going to try to get a little bit of an introduction to kind of the stage that's going on. Um, And Isaiah is a tremendous prophet to do that. I wish we could spend um, even more time in Isaiah. But Isaiah is, is, is prophesying to the people about the, uh, the rebellion that's going on in their lives. He's, he's saying God's going to bring all of this down, um, all of this evil that is existing right here and now in your midst, in Jerusalem, the city that's supposed to be the holy city of God. It's full of, of wicked practices, false prophets, and, and idol worshipers, and leaders who are encouraging you to turn the other direction. And I'm going to bring that all down so that I can raise up something new. And Isaiah basically says that same thing over and over and over again for the first like 39-ish chapters of the book of Isaiah. The, the second half of Isaiah 
uh, has more to do with after exile um, and, and a lot more of the promise of Messiah. But the first half has a lot to do with the judgment that is to come. And, and kind of what's going on in this time period is that there's a foreign nation that's about to declare war on uh, Judah and on Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's the city, Judah is the southern nation, and Assyria has already ransacked the northern kingdom and kind of busted them up a little bit. Um, Assyria is beginning to kind of strut their power as a, as a growing empire, and the people in Jerusalem, the kings in Jerusalem, the people of Judah are, are freaking out, right? They're like, oh my God, the redcoats are coming, the redcoats, like, ah, what's happening? We're, we're going down, right? And there's been warnings about this. Hey, you guys, repent. Like, even Moses told you way back at Sinai, if you don't follow God's laws, then foreign nations are going to come, they're going to conquer you, and they're going to take you away into exile, right? Moses made those promises, and all the prophets since. And so they're freaking out, they're kind of panicking, and what, the, what do they do? They say, I have an idea. Egypt will help us. <laughs> Egypt! Remember? Egypt! <laughs> They're really big. They got lion chariots. They're strong. Let's go to Egypt. Let's beg them for... I mean, it's the irony of ironies, right? This is Israel who was rescued from captivity in Egypt... Suddenly, a couple hundred years later, they're freaking out and they're terrified about Assyria beating them up and they're like, what, what can we do? What can we do? What can we do? Let's go. Let's ask Egypt for help. Let's ask Egypt. They'll help us. Great idea. And Isaiah's like, oh gosh. Yeah. You know? This is my most used emoji these days. Like the, the fist to the forehead. Oh, you're going to go to Egypt? Really? Is that what you're going to do? So to, to, to back up just a little bit from where Nathan read, if, if we go back a little bit, the beginning of Isaiah 30, it says, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Oh stubborn, rebellious children. You've turned away from me. I've called you back again and again to repentance. And now what are you going to do? You're going to run to Egypt for help? Don't, don't do that. Don't run to Egypt, right? Isaiah's just begging him, don't, don't do it. Verse 7, it says, Egypt health, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. There's nothing in Egypt that's going to stop Assyria. You're not going to find help in Egypt. And so then in verse 8 and following, he says this, Now go and write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. So that's God telling Isaiah, write this stuff down because it's going to happen as I say it, and one day they'll be able to look back on it and see that I was telling them the truth. Right? That's why we have the books of the prophets. Four, they are rebellious children, verse 9, uh, rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. 
Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dig up water out of the cistern. What's going on here? God says, listen, because you're turning to the wrong place, because you're turning to a nation that cannot save you, I'm going to basically turn you over and you're going to be broken down. You're going to be shattered to bits. Um, it's a warning to Israel. He's saying, if you do this thing, if you seek help in somewhere else other than me, then the help is going to fail you and Israel will be no more, right? Israel as a nation, as a people, as a kingdom, as a place with safe cities and fresh gardens and wonderful heart, like these things are going to, they're going to be gone. They're going to be gone. And so God gives this warning to Israel because they've betrayed him and they've turned to these false gods. Another prophet from the exile period of time, his name is Jeremiah. He says, for my people have committed two evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broke, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God says, not only have you turned away from me, but you've replaced me with stuff that can't fulfill. I'm living water. I'm true, pure, like spring rushing from the earth, beautiful drinking water, and you've turned away from me. And that's not bad. That's, that's one evil. What's even worse is now you've turned to bad, broken pots to get your drinking water out of. Leaky vessels that aren't freshwater springs at all. They're just drippings from the side of a cliff. Like that's where you're turning for water now. It's a double evil. You've abandoned me and you've said, they'll be my God. Right? So this is a warning to Israel, but it's a real vibrant picture for us too. That as followers of Jesus, we must be careful that we don't trust in everything else that God said he will be for us. That we don't put in God's place the things of money or possessions or relationships or careers or safety or security and all these other things that we're prone to be running to in this world to seek refuge, that we don't turn to those things because God is the true living water. That God is the one who will truly sustain and truly protect and truly hold us, right? Israel did what God is warning us not to do. He says, don't go to Egypt, right? Dear follower of Jesus, you remember the things that used to captivate you, right? Whether it's substance addiction, whether it's pride and arrogance, whether it's confidence in your family lineage or in the dollars in your pocket, whether it's shame because of particular sins of your past or your families, you know the stuff that held you captive. I've set you free to be your God, to give you living water. Don't go back. When trouble comes, dear Christian, when the invading army is at your border, dear Christian, okay? It's not really an invading army. I'm talking about anxiety and stress and panic and fear. When those invading armies are at your border, don't say, Egypt, Egypt, I'll go back to Egypt. No, return to the Lord, right? Return to the Lord. Why? Because he is 
gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, right? One of the most important lessons for us to learn from the Old Testament people is not this, hey, they sinned, so therefore don't sin. If that's how you read the Old Testament, you're going to have a horrible life. They sin, so don't sin. As long as you don't sin, you'll have a good life. They sinned, they had a bad life, they went to exile, so you don't sin and you'll have a good life. Good luck with not sinning today. Tim Keller, tremendous preacher in New York City, awesome dude. He says, I can't even get through a sermon without sin. When I read that a couple years ago, I went, excuse me, what? <laughs> Brothers, holy. Tim Keller's holy. Nope. Right? Like, that's not the lesson. Here's the lesson. When in sin, don't run back to it. Repeatedly run to Jesus. Repentance and faith is what will save you. Right? Not running for rescue to the world and to the things that used to captivate us. When we do sin, don't say, I know what will rescue me from sin, more sin. Hiding from God. Running from God. Putting the clothes of this world on to cover over. No, 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 no. Run back to him, right? And this is Isaiah 30, 15 to 17. This is glorious. For thus says the Lord God. Israel's running back to Egypt for help. And this is what God says. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. Egypt won't save you. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. Returning and rest is a poetic way of saying repentance and faith. Go back to God, Israel. Return to the Lord. Rest in Him. Trust in Him. Go back. Even though you've sinned, don't add sin to sin. Right? Don't add sin to sin. Go back. Go to the one who has forgiveness. Go to the long-suffering one. Go to the gracious and compassionate one. Go to the one who, yes, has called out your sin, but so that you'll come to him. Right? That's why he sent the prophet. That's why he gives us his word. That's why he graciously gives us some friends that rub us the wrong way. Because he wants us to go back to him. To not add sin to sin, but to repent and rest. To return and to trust. To not put faith in the stuff of this world to rescue us from the oppressive army that's coming, but to put faith in God alone who holds our future in his hands, who knows everything that was, everything that is, and everything that is to come, and he's got you. Trust in him. Obey him. Put your faith in him, Isaiah says. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But then it says you were unwilling. Oh, tragic. Verse 16, and you said, no, we will flee upon horses. We're going to trust in, in Egypt. They've got fast horses. And he says, therefore, you shall flee away, meaning, therefore, a far-off country will be your home. 
What else did you say? We will ride upon swift steeds. No. If you trust in horses, guess what? Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. The ones that are after you are just going to be faster. You can't, you can't outrun them, God says. Brutal. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five you shall flee till you are, like, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain like a signal on a hill. You heard stuff about Everest in the news lately, lines of people trying to climb up to the top just to reach the, pinnac, the, the, uh, the pinnacle and, and uh, say they, they climbed Everest, right? If you go to Everest or if you fly over Everest or if you have see an image of Everest, there's pictures of, there's flags all over, there's banners hanging everywhere, right? There's no fortification there. There's no safety there. There's nowhere to take refuge. There's no place to plant a garden. There's no home to abide in at the top of my... He's saying you're, gonna, you're just going to be a flag at the top of a hill. There's going to be no refuge. There's going to be no safety. There's going to be no dwelling. If you pursue Egypt to rescue you, you're going to end up devastated. He calls them to repentance and to faith. And even though Israel will turn away. They'll seek security elsewhere. They will not trust. They will not have faith in their God. God still is gracious to them. Look at verse 18. It says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Even though you turn away, Isaiah says, even though you're going to rebel, even though your pursuers will be swift and you're going to be taken into a faraway land, even though that will happen, God will wait for you. He'll be, as soon as you turn back, he'll be ready for you. A couple verses later, as soon as he hears your cry for help, he's going to be there. Right? This is the promise to the people that are about to go and endure a painful process of exile. He says, God will be waiting. As soon as you're ready and you turn back in faith and trust, God will be right there, right? It's this beautiful promise to them and to us that when we are prone to run, we can turn back and he's faithful, he's true, he's there, he's ready, and he will rescue us. And it's interesting, and this is just a, kind of a, a, a look at uh, a, a case study. If you turn a couple pages in Isaiah, you find the story of Hezekiah, one of... Um, uh, one of Judah's kings. In Isaiah chapter 36 to Isaiah chapter 39, there's an illustration or kind of a, a, a history lesson, a story of what happens when Assyria does finally come to Jerusalem. Um, and these, these uh, chapters are repeated in both 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles. It's just a, a big chunk of the history of Israel that you see. Uh, the king of Assyria does come, he brings an army to the doorstep of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah finds out, I mean, he's freaking out, right? It's, it's happening. And he repents. He calls on God. He finally goes, okay, 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 God, you're right. I'll trust you. I won't, I can't trust in myself. I'm not strong enough. I'm not going to, Egypt can't help right now. They're right on my door. I trust you. And an angel of the Lord beats the army of Assyria and sends them scurrying on back home. It's amazing. 
It happens. It's like, wow, it's so cool. It worked. I actually trusted and repented and, and said, God, please help. And, and he helped. And there's a story of how, how Hezekiah almost dies. And he also begs God to give him more life. And, and God does give him more life. It's just, we see this working in Hezekiah. He's one of the good kings, one of them. And it's working and it happens. But then at last, he does something really, really foolish. In uh, chapter 39 of Isaiah, Hezekiah is, had been temporarily rescued from Assyria. Looks like threat is over, and another kingdom comes knocking on the door. It's Babylon. And they're like, hey, we heard you got sick, and uh, you're better now. Uh, wanted to bring you a present. Here's some wine and cheese, you know. And he's like, hey, cool, you guys look friendly. And he welcomes him in to Jerusalem, and he opens up the temple, and he opens up the palace, and he shows them all the money he has. He shows them the power of his wealth. He shows them the comfort of his home. He shows them the, the amazing structure of God's temple. And Isaiah hears about it, and he runs over to Hezekiah. He's like, what are you doing? Hezekiah's like, they're nice guys. And Isaiah says, no, no, they're going to take you into captivity. Your sons and their sons are going to go into exile in that nation, right? Suddenly Hezekiah trusts again in his own security, in his own wealth, in his own riches, and he does not, he's not made aware, he's not wise enough to the fact that this empire wants to absolutely devastate him. It was just a it was just an army scoping out the land. And Isaiah says these, this is going to happen. And 100 years after that moment is when it happens, when Babylon finally returns, conquers Jerusalem, takes people into exile, and the promise that Isaiah, prophesy, prophecy that Isaiah gave to Hezekiah comes true. Right? So he does repent. He does trust in the Lord, and then he trusts in himself. Even a good king, he trusted in himself. And we see from some of the other prophets that eventually God just says it's too late. It's too late. It's too far gone. It's too far corrupt. It's too far broken. The whole thing's got to come crumbling down, and then I'm going to rebuild it, right? And that's what he says, Isaiah 30, 19 to 22. So he says things are going to break down, like a pot crashed on the ground, flag stick on the top of a mountain. It's all going to go away. And then listen to these words, 19, Isaiah 30, 19. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. The place he just said is going to fall apart. The place he just said is going to be like a flag at the top of a mountain. Nothing. For the people shall dwell in Zion in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. So exile will happen. Jerusalem will fall. The pot will be shattered. There'll be nothing but a flagstaff at the top of the, top of the mountain. But one day there will be a people again. One day there will be a people in Zion, God's city, in Jerusalem, the place of his temple, the place of his presence, one day they're going to be here without tears. Whoa. 
And one day they're going to be here and they're going to see their capital T teacher. They're going to see Jesus. One day they're going to hear him. They're going to actually hear God teach them from his mouth. This is prophecy about Messiah. He's coming. One day there's going to be a restoration that will take place. And in that day, you're going to take your idols and you're going to smash them. One day, you're finally going to see the false hopes that you run to, Egypt and elsewhere. You're going to finally see those things for what they really are, just a dumb statue with some gold paint. And you're going to realize, ah, there's no power there. I'm never going to return to that thing again and smash it and return to the Lord, right? This is a tremendous prophecy of hope a hundred years before exile even happens, Isaiah says this. One day, I'm going to bring a restoration. One day, you're going to hear your teacher speaking to you. One day, you're going to see him with your own eyes. One day, you're going to destroy your own idols. There's a great hope that is yet to come on the other side of this exile. And though judgment for the sin of Israel does have to come, judgment is not the final word. Hope is the final word. And for us, again, like we get to see from the other side of Jesus, we get to look back at all this and realize, okay, judgment happened to them, but greater judgment happened at the cross. The greater judgment of the sin of Israel and of me happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. That instead of judging me for my evil, instead of breaking me like a pot on the ground, instead of leaving me like a flagstaff waving at the top of the mountain, Jesus will be crushed like a pot on the ground. His blood will be shed and he'll be on a cross like a flag at the top of a mountain because that's where the judgment of God is finally going to happen. And that's where I can finally find my final refuge because I can look to him and see that the judgment of God is satisfied and that the holiness of God is preserved and that now because of Jesus, I don't have to endure that. Now because of Jesus, I don't have to be afraid that all oh, my sin is going to be heaped upon my own shoulders because it was heaped upon Jesus' shoulders. I will see my teacher. I will hear his voice. I will know that the work is done and that it's been satisfied. And through that substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, I can be brought into this great future people of Zion who will have no tears and who will smash their idols and who will turn from hope in Egypt to hope in God, right? This exile, the whole thing is going to be pointing us to see this great achievement of Jesus Christ on the cross, that he finally and ultimately took the judgment that was both on Israel and should have been on me, that it fell on Jesus Christ, that he was broken. That's why we practice communion, to, to look at the fact that his body was broken instead of me, that I'm not the shattered pot on the ground. It was Jesus. Jesus was the shattered pot on the ground. His blood was shed for me. And praise be to God that on the third day he rose again. Because you cannot kill God. And in that resurrection, I find a greater hope in that far-off country that one day the promise of resurrection is that just as Jesus died and was restored, so too will I die and be restored. Amen. I will rise again. The perishable, as Paul see, says, will become imperishable. The temporary will become eternal. That all of this brokenness that I experience now will finally, ultimately, and totally be erased. Exile points us towards this. 
it leads us to see Jesus and it helps us to see that even now when I live with a lot of disappointment and still a lot of things that are broken and still a lot of frustrating things, there is yet a promise to come that Jesus will restore it all. And he guarantees it. And just like Isaiah prophesied these things and they happened, so too the New Testament prophesies the return of Jesus and that will happen. You can stake your life on it, guys. It's guaranteed. He's coming back. All of these things will finally and totally and completely be true. That's what exile is going to point us to. And so I'm looking forward to this journey as we journey kind of with Israel in the process of exile and see how it relates to us now and gives us hope for the future. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thanks for this great treasure that we have in your word that points us to the fact that, yeah, we have brokenness and disappointment and sin and struggle and difficulty in this world. We know that you have given us a great promise. You have given us the promise of Messiah, and now we can look back and see that Jesus fulfilled all of these things and that the justice of God was achieved at the cross, and through him we have forgiveness so that we can repent and return, so that we can come back to you and rest in you and trust in you and be, be made new in you and be, a, be a, a renewed people in you. God, even though we, we have a... a a world today that still isn't exactly like we'd like it to be. We know that the greater hope of resurrection is before us and that the history of Israel points us to the sovereignty and the faithfulness and the patience and the power and the guarantees that God has given in his word. And we can trust in those things because we look back and see that you fulfilled everything that you said. So too we can look forward and understand that you will fulfill everything that you've said. So God, help us not just to learn some historical facts um, and to, to understand some prophecies, but God, to, to really be able to relate to and understand this turmoil that Israel went through, to pull that experience into our experience and to see just the faithfulness of God in the middle of our lives that sometimes feel kind of like exile, where we're confused and lost and it's dark, but you're good and you're faithful and you're with us. And ultimately, we thank you that, that Jesus was crushed like the pot broken onto the ground, like Jesus was on the cross left like the flag at the top of the hill, that Jesus took on all of our sin and our shame and our guilt, and he completely eradicated the record of wrong that was on every one of us and instead gave us the record of his righteousness. Faithfulness to God, that is our name now because of Jesus Christ. This is a miracle, and we are astounded by it at times. God, let, it, let that always be the case, that we look at what Jesus did, and we just think, how in the world is it true? You are so good. You are so gracious. You are so kind. You are so patient. You abide with us. You call us to repentance and faith, and as soon as we call on your name, you're there. That's grace, and it's amazing. And we thank you for it this day. In Christ's name, amen.